how do the other approaches, uh, you know, the adept approach where they're saying, all right, well, let's like build a model specifically to be an agent. Um, I think I'm more bullish. You'll get to that one faster. But I mean, I'm kind of looking at things from like perspective of well, like, what do people actually want? Welcome to Humans of AI, where we tell the real stories of those who are building an AI or are making use of it in their daily lives. Today's guest is Evan Mays, the founder of Root Beer Computer, where he is building Zero, a prototyping tool for generating mock data. Previously, he worked as a software engineer at Meta, where he built products to help content creators make a living. If you want to catch the latest episodes, make sure to subscribe and check out my free AI newsletter, Chaos Theory, and find me on social at Alex Chowmander. Now, without further ado, here's my talk with Evan. First question is, who is Evan Mays? What's your origin story? What's your background? Yeah, sure. Uh, great to be here. My origin story is, uh, I've kind of always been really into AI stuff. I think uh, it's, you know, ever since I watched uh, like the first Iron Man movie back in like 2008, I was like, man, this, this is like Jarvis thing is really cool. I'd love to have one of these. So I went on some like, YouTube videos. I was like, how do I make a Jarvis? You know, and uh, at that time, it was just kind of people doing like so, some of the, like the built-in speech to text stuff that Apple had and like computer automation stuff that Apple had. I think, I think it was called Apple script, maybe playing around with a lot of that. Uh, didn't, didn't really go anywhere. I studied computer science, went to Johns Hopkins for uh, college. Uh, after I graduated, I went to work at Meta for uh, a little, basically almost a little under a year and a half. Since then I left and uh, raised some money and started a company. So that's uh, my life story. That's super exciting. What would you say, you, you mentioned uh, always being interested in AI and probably the influence of media and maybe science fiction, if you want to call uh, Iron Man that. Uh, what would you say are some of these other influences that maybe are not typically known or or just like unique to to you that that you grew up with? I think a lot of it's just like kind of science fiction, really. I think my, uh, probably my favorite one that even honestly kind of impacts how I think about a lot of the stuff today is like the Halo series. So mm. it's a video game series, but they have this like, there's there's been like over six games at this point over the course of like maybe 20 years. And uh, this series has like, a crazy backstory, a crazy universe. They've even got like books and stuff where people are like writing things in this universe. And uh, there's a lot of AIs in that world. And they, they kind of show different visions of like what that can look like. So, so they kind of split things into like narrow AI or uh, I, think they, I think they call it weak AI and strong AI where like the weak ones are, they're, they're definitely smarter than like today's GPT-4, but they're not creative. So they have them like running things. So you can have a weak AI run a city, for example, uh, and they have their strong AIs. And the strong AIs, there's only one way to make them in this universe. It's to clone a human brain. The problem is when you clone the brain, you end up destroying it. So it really is just kind of like converting a human into the machine. And then that human's a strong AI and they can do creative things. And like, they're actually even like way more smarter, way more useful. I was always fascinated by this interaction with Cortana. Actually, I guess Microsoft even adopted that as their face of AI at, at some point. And yeah, what sort of embodied experiences like that? You know, it could be Cortana, it could be, you mentioned Jarvis. You want you can call it human-computer interaction, but what of those paradigms do you feel uh, had like good staying power and, and probably is maybe uh, something to build towards? Yeah, I think like every day that I'm kind of uh, just like writing code, I'm like, man, I really wish I had like a little Cortana to just like, send off to do this one little piece of the project and kind of like do it faithfully and like, you know, understands my intentions and it can go like uh, do things as I would do them, really. I said, that's the, that's kind of like a metric. It's like, oh, if I look at this work, if I review this work, is it done as I would do it? Um, 
I think that could be a great experience. Really hard to get right. I don't think we're like anything close to there yet. How important is it for that AI to be as smart, if not smarter than you? Because obviously we are evolving beings ourselves. We're learning more. We're, we're getting better at things. So if it's just like a digital copy of yourself, sure, it could do things as you would do them. But do, would you actually want it to be better than you or at the same level, maybe even like a little dumber so that you could control it, if you will? The, the interesting thing about like comparing this like AI intelligence to humans is that, well, it works kind of a little differently where you kind of just clone it, right? Like I, I don't have infinite clones of myself who are just like always working for me, who are willing to to give up like all of the fruits of the labor so I, I get all their output, right? Um, you know, you might call that like company if you had it, right? If you had like a bunch of employees, tens of people, hundreds of people, thousands of people on Microsoft and Meta scales. It's interesting that, I mean, you don't necessarily need it to be smarter than you for, for an individual instance of it, because if you have like a group of them, you know, a group can do a lot more than one person. Uh, of course, it'd be great if it was smarter than you on the individual level too, but I don't think it's that important. Yeah, very interesting, very interesting. So you mentioned that you went to Johns Hopkins. How was that experience, that, that program? Uh, how did it equip you to, or even like uh, form your own thinking or how you solve problems? Yeah, it's kind of funny because like uh, you tell people to go to Johns Hopkins, most of them kind of assume you, you're you know, in the med school or like you want to become a doctor. And like, I wasn't that at all. Um, I took very few like biotech related classes, mostly computer science and like some business stuff. They uh, they have like some somewhat of a smaller deep learning program I think uh, this stuff's probably getting a lot bigger now. Uh, so I took a few classes like in that area. It's interesting just kind of like how how big of a gap there was like then where this stuff was versus now. A lot of it was useful for fundamentals, but not useful. Like it's just like much of it's irrelevant, right? Like like what are your RNNs doing right now? Like they're, they're all kind of, you know, not really doing anything, you know, they don't exist anymore. Uh, yeah. Did you ever have the inkling? And we can actually, this might come up in a, as we talk later, but uh, people often ask like, oh, how do you get into AI? How do I break into this field? Do I need to get a master's, a PhD and all this stuff? Like what, what was your experience through that? Like, you know, navigating the academic side and whether you wanted to continue down that route uh, further versus do industry? Yeah, I think the, the whole like academic versus industry thing seems like a very like personal choice, right? Um, for me, it's like, all right, I want to like work on things that people can use things that even I can use specifically. Um, and you don't really get a lot of that in academia. So I think if you, if you want to, you know, break into AI, right. First, what do you want to do? Right. Do you want to be like an engineer? Do you want to be a scientist? Do you want to do something else? that's maybe not related to like kind of building it all, but if you want to go like this building route, right. Engineer science. All right. Well, that's kind of a decision to make first. Um, and they both got their challenges, like pros and cons. I think the nice thing about the, I guess the nice thing about all this stuff today is like, you don't really need a lot of uh, outside validation. So, you know, of course you can make your GPD wrappers. I'm not really talking about that. Um, you go to something like Ulothar AI, right? They have a Discord server. And uh, these are the guys that publish GPT Neo X, which is really big open source model. One of the first big ones, if you don't know. Um, you go to their Discord server and, you know, you can just uh, talk to the researchers there. You can do your own research. You can ask them for some compute and they'll give you some compute. Or can you research on a smaller scale with smaller models, right? Um, this stuff just needs time, right? You just need, you just need time to invest which is great about a lot of it. I think if you want to get an industry, it's maybe a little different since a lot of companies want credentials. Um, but I mean, same thing as software engineering, right? Just like personal projects, do cool things. People will want to work with you if you do cool things because they'll think you're a cool person. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, speaking about building cool things, one of the things that I saw that you and maybe your team worked on uh, recently, or is a, a hackathon that you participated in, was this one called, let me pull up the name, or if you have it already. Yes, yeah, so it was, it was Scale AI's hackathon, probably. Um, yeah, go for so, it. Uh, yeah, so, so the funny story about that, so this is back at uh, end of January this year. Um, Scale AI hosts their first generative AI hackathon. I get there and I wasn't really planning on participating at all. I just wanted like the free food. Seems cool. I had one other friend there, Parker, and uh, a friend of Parker is David, who I'd met there. And we were sitting there and we were like looking at these, uh, you know, they're starting the hackathon. They're saying, yeah, these are all the prizes. You can go skydiving if you win. You can go like on like a wine tour in Napa. We were looking at the judges and it was like, oh man, there's Andre Carpath. He's a judge. And this, this guy's like the, you know, former head of AI at like Tesla. He's like autopilot guy. I was like, man, this is this is pretty cool. All right, maybe we should like put some effort in. We should like actually try this thing and try to win. Um, you know, all of us were just, you know, there to hang out really. So I kind of came up with this idea of uh, GPT is all you need for backend. Um, and it ended up winning. So I can go through the premise of the idea. So essentially what you want is you want like a really clean, yeah, this is it. You want a really clean uh, kind of user interface for how people work with AIs. So in this case, we kind of looked at like front end and back end in development. And we said, all right, what if you like had the AI, like, you know, right in the middle. So it's like, okay, you're writing your front end code and your front end code has a bunch of API calls. You can call any API you want, any rest endpoint you want. Right. And we have this kind of catch all endpoint that just routes right to straight to an LLM. So the LLM takes in that API call, looks at like, you know, like the, the input body, it looks at like the, the API path and then it returns you know, the output. So, you know, we got this meme here, right? You know, he's like writing a backend, you know, hire back engineer, and ask chat GBT, or just call the LLM directly. The LLM is the backend. Uh, so, that, so that's what this hackathon project was. Um, and you could try it out. Uh, it's actually really fun to, to, to just make up an API endpoint and it just kind of works. Like we just, we tested out the to-do list app. So you can like make up a new endpoint. You could say create to-do, you can say mark complete. You can have the spelling being correct. It doesn't really matter. Um, it just works. It's pretty cool. This time, were you using just GPT-3, GPT-3.5 Turbo, or was GPT-4 uh, available for you? This is GPT-3 at the time, yeah. Interesting, yeah. I mean, this predates even the work around all this stuff around plugins, right? Or or functions yeah. and, and all that? Yeah, it's it's funny because it, it creates a lot of the public, like, you know, things that have launched. <laughs> um, so obviously, OpenAI has been working on functions for a while. Uh, the uh, interesting thing is, Kind of had this idea from working on a functions kind of copycat but it wasn't really a copycat because it was before other people were working on it so uh back in december like a side project of mine that never ended up publishing was uh, a little a little uh voice assistant copycat so i was just really upset at like you know i uh, i won't say his name because otherwise it'll light up but you know my my amazon voice assistant you know i was really upset that it didn't understand me well so i made a little copycat you got your like speech to text and then you've got your uh, language model and uh the language model is like saying okay I need to pick out which function do I call? Do I want to call the APIs for the lights? Do I want to call the Spotify API? So you kind of list out all these functions and you say, LLM, the user said this, like which function should we call? So I had kind of like a proto functions API working a while ago. Um, that kind of inspired some of back in GPT. Oftentimes, at least the, the way this technology has been implemented in the past was to just manually define all these different intents and classify them and, and then you know create whatever what do you call it? Dialogue trees that that follow that or have them call some actions or APIs from there. If anything, right, these the one thing that 
has been very illuminating in uh, playing with these large language models is that the intent detection actually just like works directly with the model and you don't have to do a lot of the hand engineering that you did in the past. The model is able to take something that could be misspelled, that could be add grammar, whatever, whatever it is, and still be able to reason about like what, what it is you're talking about and, and route to the appropriate uh, task or, or whatever. So that's been very interesting. I would imagine that all the digital assistant providers sh should be going in this direction, but for whatever reason, right, when I talk to the Amazon bot, <laughs> right, that it's still not always getting what I'm what I'm saying. So, I, yeah, I don't I don't know what's happening behind the scenes at at AWS or Amazon. Uh, I can imagine they are looking at you know generative AI and large language models, but yeah. It's something that I feel should be deployed more widely. The interesting thing about their voice assistant specifically is, uh, and a lot of this is public, well, all this is public, um, you know, it, I think, I'm pretty sure they started off with like a very BERT-like thing where it's just, uh, you have a big model and it's literally a classification model, right? Non-generative AI, all just like traditional classification. Um, it's like, all right, classify this user's request, which API do we call? Um, like that stuff is just so much cheaper to run than like a big pre-trained model. Right. Like, uh, like the, and you've got to look at like, all right, well, how much money is Amazon making off of this product? And it's like kind of nothing. Right. Um, I bought them at a discount. I've heard basically everyone else just like has them free from hackathons they went to or just random events. Like no one's really paying for it. They're kind of like was a commerce play at one point where it's like, oh man, I'm sure everyone will want to buy stuff through their voice assistant, you know, like, Hey, buy me a t-shirt. Uh, like that seems kind of silly right now, but at the time it was like, somewhat of reasonable idea, I guess. Just none of this really panned out. So it's, you know, probably hard to invest in things that don't have a return. It's, I've, I've read that it was, or it's been a multi-billion dollar loss for the Amazon unit uh, building these things. So yeah. hard to justify uh, if it's continuing to lose money. Cool. Well, one of the things that you mentioned is that you're actually working on something new and that you're, you may have raised a little bit of money to, to help build it. I don't know if it's completely, you know, in stealth right now, but in terms of what you can share, what 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 could you give our listeners? So so this, so this new thing is uh, it's so it's called zero. It's it's basically like what I think is maybe the first step towards making backend GPT something ready for production. Um, and zero zero itself is it's a prototyping tool, so you can uh you can give it a schema and it will generate an API and put a bunch of like fake mock data behind it. So kind of like these cases here is like, all right, you're making your front end, um, you know, you want to go give like a demo to a client or you want to like test something out. You need to have a bunch of like data populated, right? You want to make some like user accounts. Um, maybe it's an e-commerce site. You want to like fill in a bunch of products, like fake products here. So it's like, all right, give zero the schema. Zero will fill in all the data. It's using some AI, some language models, and it will stand up a API endpoint. Right now it's GraphQL API. Eventually it'll be REST API, but it stands up this API endpoint and I can start calling this API that has a bunch of fake data behind it. Interesting. Sounds a little bit like a continuation of your hackathon project, if you will. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 interesting because the uh, you know to build it basically had to rip out everything from the hackathon project. So it it kind of like it feels the same to use, but it's very different under the hood. Um, kind of like one of the big limits of the hackathon project was uh, you know the way the way we implemented it was. Whenever an API call, whenever the LLM received an API call, it really would get an entire JSON blob 
And that JSON blob is kind of like your database. We'd store that blob on disk, we'd like pass it into the LLM, and the LLM would output a new JSON blob, which is get stored on disk and you rinse and repeat. So it's kind of like the LLM is like taking in the whole database and outputting the whole database, which is like really great because it means like this thing is like only 58 lines of code, like the entire thing, it's tiny. Um, but of course, like, okay, well, how many tokens can you fit inside of an LLM? Well, not really enough tokens. You basically end up getting basically, uh, you limit your database to one kilobyte worth of state, which is not great. Yeah, yeah. Token management and just fitting within the context window of these large language models is often the one of the most challenging pieces or the engineering pieces of this. I I view it as it's kind of a artifact of how these large language models are today, right? And if anything, we're seeing these models get bigger, have more capacity. Token windows are increasing to what 100k plus. Um, and probably more in the future. So do you view it as like this will remain a challenging problem uh, for for AI development or AI app development in particular, or is it something else? Yeah, I think this stuff gets so like kind of problem specific. We can look at like two different examples, right? We can look at like back in GPT, for example, right? Let's say you have your like million token context window, um, but that's still only really like four megabytes, right? That's not really enough for a database, right? For like, you know, real businesses, you want your database to go to like terabytes. Right. Sorry. Or are we going to have like our, uh, you know, 10 trillion token context window? Like, all right, this is kind of getting ridiculous. Uh, you know, this, this, this approach isn't really scaling well. Um, there's definitely a lot of use cases though, where, all right, you might not be able to do things with 4,000 tokens context. You might not be able to do it with 64,000 tokens, but you could do it with like, you know, a hundred thousand or 200,000 or maybe just a million. Right. It feels like a safe bet to say, all right, you know, we'll have like our million token context at some point in the next decade. And that million token context will like be like as good as the 4,000 token context at some point in the next decade. Uh, so, you know, for your like chatbot use case where uh, a user's coming in to talk to a customer service chatbot and that conversation maybe lasts for like an hour, reasonable to expect that all that will fit in your context eventually. Yeah. One of the enabling technologies or companion technologies in this whole AI development is vector databases, right? And uh, it seems like every, almost every week uh, we're seeing a new vector database crop up. Um, I guess, do you view that as, I guess, what are your overall, thought, overall thoughts on vector DBs? And is it something that, again, is it a temporary thing, a temporary solution to this problem of, you know, retrieving the right chunk of or right embedded you know, data and then putting that inside your, your prompt and putting or giving that to the to the LLM, um, is that just like a hack? <laughs> is that an engineering thing? Or is that a enduring solution? Yeah, I, I think like, I talked to someone who wanted to make this one thing and it was like personalized. I talked to a few people I want to make this actually, like very personalized learning with LLMs. So like you, you can imagine, this might not be a great product, but you can imagine uh, you want to learn about X topic you go to the LLM and you say, write me a textbook on X topic. This textbook should take into account everything that I know about this topic, right? So that way it like skips over things I don't know or skips over things I already know. Um, it draws connections to things I already know, right? So if I'm an expert in like riding bicycles, then when you're teaching me how to ski, you should like somehow connect that to bicycles if there's a connection there, right? Um, if I'm an expert in skateboarding, then maybe you can connect snowboarding to that, right? So like, all right, if you want to do something like this and you only have 4,000 tokens of context, like how is a vector retrieval ever going to help you fit in the perfect tokens of context, right? Like there's too much stuff that one human knows to solve this problem specifically. 
so all right, well, you know, there's some other approaches you can try there, right? But uh, the kind of point is sometimes for some use cases, vector retrieval will never be great enough. For a lot of use cases, it'll be plenty. I think the uh, kind of vector databases specifically, you know, like there's retrieval and there's like the database specifically, right? I think uh, for databases, it's, it's kind of interesting. I think more people should try out just like Postgres is PG vector. It's a little extension you added to Postgres and automatically you, you can have like a column that stores databases, right? And you kind of look at that and you're like, wait, like, do we have string databases? Do we have integer databases? Like, why is vector databases any different? Um, and, you know, the vector database companies have an argument for that. And people who use PG vector have an argument. And, uh, you know, if you're on really small scale, just use NumPy, you know, just uh, store your vectors on disk and load them into NumPy, do a similarity search. Yeah. Harpathy, in one of his tweets I saw, he, I think he created a demo um, recommending movies with from IMDb. And someone asked him, oh, like, which vector database are you using? Like, is he going to give a shout out to a particular one? And he's like, I just use NumPy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the simplest solution, right? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Transitioning then into some other topics. Uh, one topic that has been getting more steam just recently uh, is this one of agents uh, in particular and like agentic behavior of the AI being able to do things on its own uh, and solve problems given maybe a set of tools, set of plugins, you know, connectors, et cetera. Uh, what are your thoughts about agents uh, as a whole? Like, again, is it a fad? Is it, a, you know, the direction that things are going? And especially on in terms of like how you're building things too. Yeah. So it's interesting because like, I think clearly it's like, all right, long-term, you want to just hire like an AI teammate, right? And it's like, all right, this guy's this guy's a teammate. He just does his own work and he replaces him for a human, right? That's like super long-term. It's like, you know, that is an agent. It's nothing like the agents we have today though. Um, I think today's agents, I haven't really been impressed. Like the use cases where it's like you give a chatbot tools, I think that's great. I think a lot of use cases for that today, it kind of works. The ones where it's like, oh, I'll like tell this thing to go buy me movie tickets and then it'll like click around in the browser and go buy me movie tickets or buy me a plane ticket. It just feels kind of silly. Um, like, I don't think I really want that as a consumer. It's like, all right, like what ticket do I get? Like, uh, you know, does it know my preferences that well? Like if I have to explain all these preferences to it, then why don't I just buy the ticket myself? The, the intersection of people who fly a lot and have personal assistants, they can basically write like a two page, like description for their assistant on how to buy a plane ticket. Right. It's like all of their preferences in two pages. And like, all right, well, okay, you know, that says one thing. You can fit all of someone's preferences for how to buy a plane ticket in two pages. But it also says, wait, like you need two pages for this. Like, is any consumer who flies two or three times a year going to like sit down and write those two pages? And that's somewhat ridiculous. And the other problem is they don't really work. So, you know, you know, who's using AutoGPT today for anything actually useful? And it's uh nothing is anyone. I'm guessing sounds like you're probably not investing too much other than playground hobby stuff. Uh, at least even for your own own uh, zero project. Not yet. I think the there's multiple paths to getting towards like great agents. You know, kind of like one path is saying, okay, well, if uh, OpenAI drops a model that is just, just so happens to be smart enough that it actually can figure out like, you know, which tool to call or which like button to click on a website. If the model's that smart, great. You kind of like get agents as like a side effect, which is what we're seeing of like a lot of these like recent developments people are, publishing on GitHub, basically. Um, kind of the other approach is uh, 
you know, the adept approach where they're saying, all right, well, let's like build the model specifically to be an agent. Um, I think I'm more bullish. You'll get to that one faster. But I mean, I'm kind of looking at things from like perspective of well, like, what do people actually want? Right. And then along with the intersection of like what you can build in the next few years, I just haven't spent that much time looking at this stuff yet, really. Yeah. Well, following from that, um, in terms of figuring out what people want, uh, what is something that you feel people are not paying enough attention to in AI? Yeah, I think uh, on the product side, actually, I, I think an interesting thing happening is uh, the kind of whole like GPU shortage. So one of like, kind of like the moments where I started going even deeper into AI was uh, I had a side project where I wanted to like learn how to design a chip. So I like spent some time designing an AI chip and talk about that in a second. But, uh, you know, it seems like uh, I don't think MV will be the only game in town in four or five years. Uh, like AMD is like really catching up here. There's kind of like a few, a few like big things you have to get right to delegate AI chip. One of them is you need enough memory bandwidth. Another one is you need a really good software stack. I think everyone talks about this now. We're like, all right, well, like if you have a chip, but I can't use PyTorch with it, or I have to go like edit my code to work with your chip, that's pretty dumb. I forgot what the third one is, but uh, I'm sure there is a third one. Uh, you know, AMD is, they're, they've, they've got that on the memory bandwidth and they're getting there on the software stack. You know, there was like the recent Mosaic announcement where they showed that they were to train on AMD without making any software changes. There's like stuff that like Tiny Corp is doing, which is really cool with like Tiny Grad. A lot of cool things happening there. The third one might be the connection between the, the ships or like the NVLink sort of yeah. equivalent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All, all the interconnect. That's the third one, right? So it's like, how do you go from, oh, I have one GPU to I have eight GPUs. And how do you go from I have eight GPUs to I have 2,048 GPUs, right? And like, uh, you know, that's that's... That's another big one. NVIDIA has a lot of proprietary stuff there. Um, AMD seems to be maybe figuring that out. But even if they really, even if they just get like eight GPU machines working, that's still a really big win and a really great place to start. AMD for a while was, to put it bluntly, more like a laughing, laugh, the laughing stock of, of AI. Like it wasn't treated seriously, but especially with their newest chip that's come out recently, at least from the public you know, benchmarks and things like that. It's getting to be quite competitive and NVIDIA for sure has the lead today, but that doesn't always mean that it will continue to have that. So I'm, yeah. I'm for one, I'm saying, or in the belief that more choice is better for the end consumer, right? It makes it uh, just a better playing field overall. Uh, give the engineers, the researchers, the choice to see that which hardware you know stack makes uh, the most sense for them. Yeah, 100%. But what would you say is something that you personally are excited about that probably people are talking about uh, it's quote unquote mainstream, but that you're you're like, oh yeah, that this is like really cool. I'm like all for this. It's funny because you know you work at Microsoft, but uh I'm I'm actually way more a fan of guidance than than LinkChain. And uh nothing against LinkChain. LinkChain's great, of course. Um I think the kind of like the way I describe the differences to people, the difference to people is that uh Guidance is like way more low level than LangChain. Um, so LangChain is very opinionated. They make like a lot of decisions for you. They just have you like higher up in the stack. I think Swix coined this new term AI engineer. Um, if you're doing stuff like that, it feels like guidance is doing more work for you in the sense that, like, all right, if you want to make a chatbot, you can just go copy the prompt online. You don't really need to use 
some like fancy Python framework to make a chatbot, just like copy the prompt online. Um, you know, so if you use something like guidance, well, they'll help you with things that are like really hard, things you can't copy online. Like how do I make this thing go fast, right? Like if I'm generating a JSON blob, how do I make sure it follows the follows the format of JSON strictly? Um, you know, guidance will take care of that for you, right? Uh, how do I make sure give, that- Can you yep. give for the listeners, just like a high level overview of, of what guidance is? I have yeah. a repo up here, so if you can for sure yeah. refer- Whatever. So, so, so guidance is a, it's a Python library. Um, what it does is they have this like, templating engine. So, you know, you'll write your prompt in their templating language and your prompt can have variables in it. Um, kind of like Python F strings. Uh, it can do things like, uh, you can see there, it says like select. So like, you can like say, oh, for the next token, I want to generate like, you know, like one of these options, right? So it's saying, all right, you know, I want to generate like, uh, yeah, one of these options, um, you can do things like tell it like what JSON schema you want the model to output in. And the cool thing is like, you know, this is like, they support a bunch of like, you know, behind the API models, they'll support a bunch of like open source models. Um, it's a fun tool to play with if you want to like build stuff and like pass back control between like things you want the model to say and then like times you want the model to hop in and generate stuff itself. Yeah, uh, myself and the colleagues at on the Semantic Kernel team are actively talking with and looking to integrate guidance uh, in, in some form capacity. One of my teammates described this as prompt templating, but on steroids, right? You just get, as you said, like more low level control over, over these sort of things. And yeah, I mean, I think it's really awesome. It started off as just what, like two researchers from Microsoft research, and they've uh, been able to build something that has gotten quite a lot of traction. So. Yeah, this is, this is super exciting. Where are we in the golden moment of AI? Are we still trying to build the tools, like the, the picks and shovels pieces? Have we graduated and, and we can now focus on just pure applications or are we still figuring something else out? Yeah, I, like, I don't think we're in the golden moment yet. How many people interact with a large language model every day? I don't actually think it's that many. Um, you know, they said ChatGPT had like 100 million users. I don't really think those are all active. I don't know. I don't know what the actual number is. I haven't like kept up to date, but yeah, there, there's like so much more room to grow. The, the other thing is like a, a lot of these like kind of use cases you see like blow up on Twitter and stuff, like they don't work yet, right? A lot of them will be great when they do work and like they're great ideas, but they're more like visions of the future than like things you should be doing today. I mean, in, in some ways overhyped, in other ways underhyped, uh, I think like you know, people who kind of like trivialize it and say, oh, it's just like generating next tokens. It's just like word complete or like never be good. Well, it's like, yeah, well, you know, this one was just trained to like generate next tokens on the internet. Right. So it's kind of going to be like, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be what it is, but there's room for like great things. Like, I mean, even like self-driving cars, right. Like, you know, these companies like Tesla or like comma and stuff, they're trying to, they're starting to put the transformers like in their systems. Um, and they're not language models, but they're, in some ways, they're learning the language of driving, which is cool. From my time working in self-driving cars, the interesting thing was that more or less like the ResNet architecture, which has been out since I think like 2015, is still like the predominant architecture for all the image-based you know, uh, work. There's probably some more interesting things around temporal like prediction, uh, prediction, you know, the actions of of actors in the next time sequences. But yeah, I mean, I think Transformers, it, it's been at least a couple of years since, since I was there. So 
I think early on transformers were certainly interesting for people to look at, but probably now, yeah, they're, as you said, they're trying to take these same sort of paradigms, learnings from the language space and see how they map to the different self-driving problems. So, yeah, yeah. I think also, uh, kind of like golden age, I think you'll know you're in a golden age when you don't have to wait anymore, like on the phone for customer service, you just call up like the restaurant. They always pick up because it's just an AI they have working for them. You know, you, you try to return something, they always pick up. I mean, like, remember like when all the airlines, I think it was around Christmas when uh, they, they all got like backed up for a big storm, right? And it was like this like weird effect where like a storm over here, like just like caused this chain reaction where the air, airplanes over here couldn't take off. Um, and, you know, if you try to get your money back, it's like, all right, you want to go sit in like a phone waiting for six hours? It's like kind of ridiculous. Um just to ask the same question everyone else is going to ask. It's just, it's ridiculous. So, I mean, like the real like golden age, in my opinion, is when the user experience for this stuff gets to a place where it's like, you just like take some model from OpenAI or from whoever else the big players are then, and you just drop it in and you say, you are a customer service agent or you are a programmer or you are X, Y, Z. And then it just does the thing that you want to do. That's, that'll be the golden age, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, sure. I think that would be a very welcome and exciting time. Going actually back to this question uh, that we kind of touched on earlier about people who want to break into this field. I think you have you know, a unique track or unique path to, to this, uh, but maybe not everyone can follow the same path or maybe they're actually at the stage where they're, they have to make some real decisions of like, oh, should I take this class? Should I register for this major? Or should I do like academia versus, versus industry? I guess, broadly speaking, um, or as specific as you can be, like what advice would you give uh, to someone who's trying to break into this field? Yeah. Uh, so like, I mean, for like, you know, maybe like a like technical we're talking? Who wants Let's start to with technical. Let's start with technical. Yeah, yeah start with technical. Um, I think, all right, well, you know, you're, a, you're like a freshman at some school. I think there's kind of like two types of like classes you can take maybe. And like in, in one type of class, it's like, they're going to tell you, yeah, like here's all the problems people have solved, right? Like you take like, you take like physics one or physics two, and they'll just like tell you all the problems people have solved, like all the formulas they've created and stuff. Um, you take like a like good history class and like, all right, they, they, they'll, sure, they'll tell you some like important facts about history, but like, they'll also teach you how to like, look at kind of all the evidence and like draw your own conclusion of like what you think really happened. Because, you know, a lot of stuff in history, we don't really have like perfect records right so it's like you have to fill in the blanks i think like for thought of like what i'd imagine like kind of deep learning classes today or i don't people even use the word deep learning anymore is that like a thing like is, is that really still a phrase i don't even know it's, i feel like it's fallen out of favor yeah it might have might have fallen out of favor right so maybe it's called an ai class but you're taking some ai class right interesting because the stuff they teach you is going to be things that people have figured out in kind of like you know the past few years right so you talk about like like ResNet and stuff, right? And like, all right, ResNet's still being used, but like, uh, you know, what about what about your RNNs, right? It's, uh, I think the possibly like the best route if you're technical is to just try to understand things on like a more of a fundamental level because it's just like the stuff will change so much. The implementation details will change. Um, like the specific library or using TensorFlow or PyTorch or, or LangChain, like, like that'll change. Um, but like the low level details matter in my opinion. I think they give you a lot of intuition. I think the other thing is uh, I think a lot of people kind of over-optimize on like 
trying to go maybe directly at the goal they're trying to achieve. Or sometimes like if you, you know, go off the track a little bit, you can draw connections in cool random ways that other people couldn't. If there's like something else you're interested in, like some other class, some random, you know, like the, like the meme, it's like underwater basket weaving, right? You know, if you're interested in that and like take that class, maybe you can draw some connection there that other people can't see. Do you find then that there's been some questions about the value of a liberal arts education? You know, a lot of people push the the STEM type fields, get people to become engineers, doctors, et cetera. And that's still for sure, like very sensible advice if you especially want to quote unquote, like get a job outside of or after college. But it does seem that, uh, especially if you want to become like even a better prompt writer, prompt engineer, that actually having a more well-rounded education where you're taking classes that are just, you know, expand your horizon, that that, that there's a there's a place for that too. So I guess, you know, from that, like, and for non-technical people, what advice would you give to, to them? Yeah. yeah. The whole, like, there's definitely possibly growing number of people who, I just want to move to a world where, like, school is, like, literally just STEM. These 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 super, like, a world where everything's moving to STEM, where everything's just kind of super objective. I, I think the bigger thing is, like, do you care about what you're doing than necessarily, like, what it is? And, like, you know, sure, if you, if you want to get a job, study STEM, right? Uh, I think, honestly, even if you want to be a prompt engineer, like, you still should like study some STEM. <laughs> like, uh, uh, yeah, it, it feels way more important to me that like uh, you, you set up like school, for example, in some environment where people actually like want to learn and like where they actually care more so than like, oh, are, are they studying math or are they studying like English? Like, I don't think that matters as much as like, do people actually care about what they're learning? But I think, all right, if, if you're non-technical and you want to get into the field, I think there's, I think there's like a, there's possibly like a parallel to crypto here. Uh, for, for a long time, like crypto is just like, there's no real way for someone to even use this thing unless they know how to code, right? Um, there's no way for someone to even learn about this thing unless they know how to code, right? So it's like, okay, well, you have these kind of like people who are non-technical, but they can come to like a lot of these crypto companies and, you know, figure out how do we like translate these ideas the way everyone else can understand, right? Which is like, you know, I guess you can call that marketing, right? Um, a lot of these roles like should exist at like all these new AI companies. Uh, you know, if you're uh you already have a job, you know, you already have some experience and like, go join one of these companies, go join like a startup or maybe a really big one. If you want, if you're, you know, maybe in school, then, uh, I don't know, switch to STEM. It's probably easier to get a job that way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My advice that my advisor gave when I was at Berkeley was you can for sure choose. Cause I was interested in the social sciences actually, uh, at the beginning, uh, as overall still am, but my advisor's basically said like, Hey, Alex, I think to set you up for the future so that you could do basically whatever you want, you should try focusing on getting technical skills and, and building that foundation so that, yeah, if you want to go do sociology or something else like that later, you'll be able to be just more competitive in the, in the marketplace and just like have, be able to approach problems that people who don't maybe have those skills yeah, that you'd be able to tackle problems that they wouldn't be able to. So I took that advice heart and yeah, just try to gain as much uh, technical ability that I could. Yeah. I mean, even the, uh, the amount of leverage you get just from uh, maybe like learning like the most base technical skill of like, can this problem be solved with code? 
right? Like just being able to always have an answer for that question. Like, like, is this something we can solve with code? Like, I think that's a big win. I, I hear like stories about like people um who, uh, you know, they're just like doing some stuff like manually. And it's like, you can write like a 30 line Python script for that to like automate it. And you can mm-hmm. like save like 10 hours a week, which is like mm-hmm. a huge win, you know? So, yeah. 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 I mean, I still see people today who are just going into spreadsheets manually and updating cells one at a time when, yeah, they could just write a script or something to do that uh, more more efficiently. Yeah. Okay. As we wind down or as we go towards uh, the end of this show, at least, it's been been great talking with you, Evan. One of the... One question that I have, it's a bit more fun, is you mentioned, you know, being interested in, in things like in, in sci-fi and, and uh, Iron Man and, and Halo. <laughs> so what do you have any like movies or book recommendations uh, to at least help people if, if they want to like better understand the mind of Evan? Like what which books have been very formative in your in your thinking, in your view of life? Yeah, which books? Um, well, okay, so this one's not necessarily formative in my view of life, but Three Body Problem is the most recent fiction book I've read. Uh, I read it like a few months ago. Someone told me to borrow it. Um, I was very captivated. I've heard people say it's like not a great book, but I liked it a lot. And th- this is like, a, I forget who translated it, which translation I was reading. So so the gist of Three Body Problem is, uh, and I won't spoil it too much, but there's, um, there's basically like aliens coming. Um, everyone has to like, the whole globe has to like work together to defend against this. Um, and it's like told from like a, a super like Chinese perspective. So like the book literally like starts off in like culture revolution. Um, and, you know, it's got some real elements and some fake elements. Right. So it's kind of like pseudo history. That's like not completely real. Um, but uh, it's good, like mingling of like cultural culture and like geopolitics and like aliens. That I think is really cool. Honestly, I, I think I'm like, way more of a movies fan than book fan um you can recommend movies go ahead i think uh like wally was really cool <laughs> um i think like uh the pixar movie right is that is a pixar I yeah, the pixar. Oh, yeah, yeah um there's some other interesting ones like uh like that uh and there's one with like this like really big robot um the like, Iron Giant. <laughs> Iron Giant. Yeah, the Iron Giant. Oh, yeah. that's OG. That's 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 back in the yeah. day. Yeah. Um what what are you two to that one? Both both Dolly and, and Iron Giant. They're both animated and you know more targeted towards kids, but but yeah, yeah, yeah. And I watched these when I was a kid, but uh yeah, yeah. The um the Iron Giant, like it's just like it's like this guy's like friends with a robot. That's like pretty cool. It's definitely like a story of friendship. Um I guess what uh, what Wally is also um, the interesting thing about Wally is this kind of like like what one you've got this like super clean new robot and like this super old robot um, and then you also got like kind of like humans just like watching Netflix in the background twenty four seven but that's not really like the point of the story like the story is just like about these robots and one of them can't even talk I think uh, I don't think these things like necessarily change how I view the world but. They definitely kind of change like how I imagine things working in the future. And, like I'm hoping we're not just all like TikTok addicts, but like this idea that like these like robots have their own life, 
outside of what the humans are doing is like pretty cool. Okay. Well, it's been a very lively uh, discussion. Again, thank you so much, Evan. Uh, if the viewers uh, at home want to catch what you're doing or, or connect with you, where, where can they find you? Yeah. Uh, you know, follow me on Twitter. It's a great place to get updates. Um, what's yeah. your, what's your handle? My handle is Evan on zero ping. So like, you know, E-V-A-N-O-N, like the numeral zero and then ping like P-I-N-G. Very on brand with what you're working on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, and, uh, my company's name is root beer. So if you want to follow the company account, it's, uh, at try root beer, you know, like you should drink root beer. You should try it out, you know? <laughs> yeah. Ooh, I don't like it. Hopefully get a, I don't know if you already have a, a mascot or something. Honestly, I'm not sure what the logo is going to be. Um, it's actually been kind of bugging me. I don't know at all yet. Yeah. If you have any ideas, I'll take them. Oh, that's ChatGPT. <laughs> ChatGPT plus Dolly. How about that? Yeah, exactly. The combo, the plugins. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Awesome. Well, again, Evan, thank you so much for this time. Uh, really enjoy this conversation. And hopefully we get to have another one in the future. Yeah, for sure. Great being here, Alex. All right. All right. Have a good one. Take care. Hey, thanks for listening to Humans of AI. If you're building something with AI or have perspectives you want to share, drop me a note at alex.humansofai.xyz. And be sure to subscribe to my newsletter, Chaos Theory. Until next time, this is Alex, Resident Chaos Coordinator. <laughs>